Amen. Thank you for the reading, Mr. Ben. If you all will join me in prayer, we'll uh, dive in here. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to come together and <clears throat> worship you, and worship you in spirit and in truth uh, the way that, you're, that you desire us to. So God, I do ask uh, your blessings over this time as we uh, work together, as we talk together, as we think together, that you would give us wisdom in all these things. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you, you may or may not know this about me, but I have a tremendous fear of swimming in open water. I uh, do not like to swim where creatures live, okay? That's not, not the way that I roll. So, um, however, I've, I do have a good friend of mine who one time, he may or may not be in this room, one time he convinced me to go scuba diving. And uh, he knows that this is a tremendous fear of mine, but he likes to play uh, games like that. And so... Um, he convinced me to go scuba diving in Thailand, of all places, great, great place. But uh, so we were there getting fitted for uh, our costumes, is what I call them, all of the, all the stuff you have to wear to go and live in the water for a few hours. They're explaining all of the equipment and how everything works and how you put it on. And they told me that if you put this tube in your mouth, it's connected to this tank on the back. Do we have any scuba divers? Any people like to do that? Yeah. So you understand, right? You put this tube in your mouth. It's got a tube connected to a tank full of air. And they tell you you're perfectly safe to breathe uh, through that tube when you get in the water and you go down like 20 feet underwater. It's perfectly safe. And I said, okay, that makes sense. Like I know I understand how tubes work and tanks of air, and okay, I, I believe you. I, I think you're telling me the truth. I believe you. And so then we go out on this boat, and we keep going out and going out and going out. Okay, all right, we're, we're really going to the ocean, aren't we? Um, and then I put on all the stuff. We all jump in. We start going underwater, and I know, right, I'm supposed to be able to breathe, and I'm trying to breathe through this tube, and, and it's working, and I knew that it would work, and, and someone told me that it would work. Someone told me it was perfectly safe, but it turns out my body didn't believe it. My body, my heartbeat just started beating because I'm underwater, and everything in me didn't actually believe that this was safe, and so one of the things they had told us was, if everything's okay, go like this. Because if you do this for okay, it means I want to go up. And I was like, okay, I remember that. All right, so thumbs. So I look at the instructor lady who's staring at me through goggles, and I go. <laughs> and she goes. <laughs> and I go, no, I want to go up. I know you told me this meant up. So we went up, and I took all the apparatus off. I said I tried, and I stayed the rest of the afternoon on the boat. Have no desire to breathe underwater. It's not how we were made. It's not natural. My body does not believe that it's safe, regardless of what you tell me. It just does not. The reason I bring that story up, one, just so you can get to know me a little bit better and never ask me to go swimming in an open body of water. That would be nice of you. Um, this... This picture, right, I knew someone had given me information that I would be perfectly safe. I believed that information in my head. But when I actually got in the water, I didn't believe it so much as I thought I did, right? We live in an age 
where our society is, is so fascinating. Our society is kind of Christian and kind of not, right? Like, people generally, whether they actually follow Jesus or not, um, people generally live with a certain set of values, certain set of, of understanding about how to get along in the world. Uh, people are generally polite and kind. Um, you know, we're not, we're not living in ancient Rome. Like, like it's a different world that we live in. And so, so as we're just kind of wandering around, um, it, we live in sort of this kind of Christian but not really Christian world. And those of us who follow Jesus, we, we can sometimes wonder, and I think it's a valid question, what, what actually sets us apart? If we, if we all kind of live with the same general values, what actually makes us any different? And I think a lot of people in our culture, in our society who don't follow Jesus, who don't believe in Jesus, um, wonder the same thing. What, what actually makes you guys any different? Because we all just kind of get along. And do we really need to follow this guy, Jesus, in order to just get along? And it's an interesting question. Um, what sets Christ's followers apart? So, so at one point in time, Jesus actually makes this statement, which I think is very uh, important. And he's quoting the book of Isaiah here. But it's in Matthew 15, verse 8. It says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And he's talking about his kind of Jewish culture in the first century, but, but I think it sort of fits in our society too that what he's saying is, is there's sort of this outward expression of general Christian ideals and values by which we as a society tend to live. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They honor me with their, and I think this is not just true of our broad Christian culture, but can be true within the church. That we honor God with our lips, but our hearts are far from me. Now, we have a problem because when we hear heart, especially this close to Valentine's Day, we think emotion. That's what our society, that's how our culture kind of thinks of the heart. It's how we feel. Just if you don't learn anything else from me today, which I hope is not true, but but at least at least at least learn this: when the Bible says heart, it does not mean your feelings. Okay, it's not the, the that's not what the word heart meant to the ancient world. What the heart is is not your feelings; it's your deep-rooted motivations for your behavior. It's what motivates. It's it's the stuff underneath you. So in my scuba diving story. What was motivating my fear when I got in the water? That is your heart. The outward expression, your lips, your behavior is one thing, but deep down in your bones, do you believe this? You really believe this? See, that's the difference. That's, that's an important difference that Jesus brings up that, that these root causes of our behavior. See, the real difference between those who follow Jesus and those who don't is not our behavior necessarily. Because you'll meet all kinds of people who behave really nice and don't follow Jesus at all. And it's not even just our beliefs. What really sets a follower of Jesus apart ought to be these deep-rooted motivations underneath the surface. What is it that motivates you to behave a certain way? And when things get hard, 
what does that reveal to you about what you really believe? You see, this is, this is the question of discipleship, which that word even sounds really small when I say it out loud. When you think about the aim of discipleship being some sort of idea that, um, that I've got to change these underlying motivations deep in my soul, like, man, discipleship? That's what it does? <laughs> I'm going to need a lot more help than, than just a Bible study class, right? Because that's what we think of when we think of discipleship, at least a lot of us. We think, well, discipleship means getting real deep into Scripture and getting more knowledge and information out of that. Or it's taking a class. Or, or maybe discipleship is just for those elite Christians, you know, the, the really good ones. But no, the idea behind discipleship is it's not optional, for those who want to follow Jesus, is what it, what it means to follow Jesus is to apprentice your life under him and learn from him how to live life and to have those inner motivations transformed. And so the question that I want us to think about is what are our inner motivations for the things that we do? Are we just as motivated by anxiety and fear, the desire to control as everybody else? Are those underlying, that underlying current in the stream of our lives, are, are we just as motivated by resentment and revenge, vengeance? Is that, is that how we are wired? And, and, and underneath, are we just as anxious as everybody else? Are we just as fearful as everybody else? What's the difference between those who follow Jesus and those who don't? I think this is the question of discipleship. What could motivate us? How can we be motivated differently than the world? And this is what brings us, we're, we're in this series talking about uh, a new vision statement that we have crafted as a church. Is that still up there? Is it still available? Can we go back to that? Can I do that? I don't know how these things work. Is it gone now? Oh, there it is. All right. I don't like this. Okay. Um, just so you all know. This is our vision statement. This is what we want to become as a church, a flourishing community of Jesus' disciples, Josh talked to you about that, marked by unusual joy and forgiveness. That's the piece I want to think about today. What could we be motivated by? Instead of fear and anxiety, could we be motivated by joy? Instead of resentment and holding on to grudges, could we live our life in an environment of forgiveness and mercy. See, those are, those are deep things. Now, my, my aim today is to define these things. What is joy? What is forgiveness? Why unusual? Um, and also to kind of, the question that I've gotten asked most when I've shared this with some of you is why joy and forgiveness? Why, why did you pick those two things? Those things seem kind of random. So, so hopefully, I'm going to tell you why we've picked joy and forgiveness. And looking at this passage in Mark 11, I think, will help us get there. So, so what Jesus is doing here, he's, this is an interesting story in the life of Jesus. He has just uh, cursed a fig tree on his way to Jerusalem. And the fig tree, the next day, they go by it, and it's dead. And Peter is amazed. And Peter goes, what? How did this happen? 
You know, we saw you, we heard you curse it yesterday, and now it's dried up and dead. Peter is surprised by this, and Jesus' answer in verse 22 is very simple. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. And and what Jesus is going to do, he's going to teach about the concept of prayer here. Have faith in God. If you want to boil that down a little bit, just to two words, is this. Trust God. That's what Jesus is saying. So Jesus curses a fig tree, fig tree withers. Peter says, wow, that's amazing. And Jesus looks at Peter and goes, trust God. (laughs) Trust God. Now, there's a lot of symbolism. I'm not going to get into what Jesus was actually doing with the fig tree there. Just, Just that's the context. That's what's going on. But these words are so crucial. This is always the starting place of of following Jesus. There's a question. Do we trust God? Do you trust God? Do you really trust him in your bones? Right? Not, not, Not like I trusted the scuba tank and I knew I had the information in my head and I believed it. Right? You start to see the difference? I believed it. But did I believe it in my bones? And we say, yes, I trust God. I believe. But is that in your bones? Do we trust God in that way? Um, this is always the start. We never graduate from this as Christians, I don't think. I think this is always going to be the lesson. Over and over and over and over again. Jesus is going to say, do you trust God? Do you trust me? Do you really? Do you trust me? This is what he's trying to teach. And this is in the context of prayer. Uh, And Jesus utters this next statement. uh, Truly, I tell you, if anyone says this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea and does not doubt in their hearts but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Um, Jesus Jesus starts to give us this picture of prayer. Like all of a sudden we're going to be talking to God. That's what prayer is. It's just talking to God. And so Jesus comes and he gives this idea. And I love this. Like this is an idea that, that even our culture, again, we have this sort of Christian culture. This idea that faith move, moves mountains, right? Like, that's, everybody knows that, whether you've been in the church or not. Like, our, our society's just heard that. It's one of the great things of living in our society is if you listen, Jesus is on every street corner. He's always, he's always there. People say things that Jesus said, and they don't even know that Jesus was the one who said them. Jesus' name is used as a curse in our culture. Nobody else's name, as far as I know, is. But, but it, it just shows that Jesus has permeated our society, and it's, it's great for us as people who want to follow him because you can see him everywhere. You can hear him everywhere. Music and in art and TV shows, his ideas are just everywhere if we would just listen. But that's kind of a side point. It's always teaching us. What Jesus is saying here, because as far as I know, I've, not, I've met a lot of Christians. I've read a lot of books. I know Christian history really well. I, I don't know of anyone who's actually thrown a mountain into the sea. Okay? So what's Jesus saying here? What he's saying is there is absolutely nothing. There's absolutely nothing that trust in God cannot accomplish. There is absolutely nothing that trust in God cannot accomplish. That's what he's teaching his disciples. And so when we get that idea, there's absolutely nothing that trust in God cannot accomplish. It says, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Prayer. 
Prayer is this simple but profound thing. It's something so simple, kids do it, right? We heard. And we learn a lot if you listen to how they pray. And don't just pat them on the head. Actually listen. They teach us. Prayer is a powerful thing. It's a very simple thing, but it's a very profound thing. It's a very profound thing. This isn't a mistake where Jesus says, ask anything and I'll give it to you. He says this over and over and over again, actually. So it's not a one-off slip of the tongue by Jesus. It's a pretty radical thought. John 14, 13 is another place. I think I have that one. He, Jesus in the upper room. We talked about that last time I preached. He's teaching his disciples, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified. Now, what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? It's a good question. Uh, if, if I give you the right to do something in my name, what does that mean? It means that you go do it as if I were the one doing it. So what this means is if you pray as if Jesus were the one praying, you pray like Jesus would pray, I'll do it. No questions asked. I'll do it. Jesus teaches this idea. Prayer is powerful. we got to remember that. Prayer, prayer really matters. He, he teaches in Luke 18 about this persistent widow. He says there's this judge who's an unjust judge. He's not a fair judge, not a good judge. There's this widow who has been wronged, and she just bugs the judge into submission. That's what Jesus, this is the story in Luke 18, that she keeps coming to the judge going, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice. And finally he goes, if I don't do something, this lady's going to drive me nuts. And so he gives her justice. And Jesus says, if an unjust judge would give justice, just to avoid being annoyed, how much more will your Father in heaven take care of you? Trust God. Right? In, in Matthew 7, he gives this great teaching that uh, is just one of my favorites. And, and he, he's talking about prayer. He's teaching on prayer. And he says, which of you, if your kid came up and asked for fish, would you give him a snake? Well, obviously, if you love your kids, you're not going to do that. And, and Jesus uses this picture, something we all know. We wouldn't do that to our kids. I like, actually, I, I think it's Luke's version. He says, if your kid asks for a, um, what does he ask for? A bowl, I think. If your kid asks for a bowl, would you give him a scorpion? I just, I like, I like that image of a scorpion. Like, it sounds so ridiculous. Like, who would do that? And Jesus says, well, if you, who's a parent and just a human, how much more so will God give you good things when you ask for good things? But this all boils down to trust. Because the truth of the matter is, sometimes we get things from God and we think it's a scorpion. And it may hurt us. It may scare us. It may look and feel like a scorpion. See, this is what Jesus is really teaching. Sometimes things come into our lives and you think, this is a snake. God gave me a snake. God gave me a situation and a circumstance. And I don't trust him with, with what he's just brought into my life. See, that's, that's what Jesus is getting at. Even when it looks and feels like a snake, do you still trust God? Because he will give you good things. But those good things may be hard for you. One of the best lessons I've ever heard on prayer was an offhand remark by a little old lady 
in my church growing up, I was probably 17, 18 years old. We were at a senior adult luncheon, okay? I used to go to the senior adult luncheons when I was like 16 because they had the best food. (laughs) And they would just all bring potluck food and I would just hang out with them. And this old lady, uh, little old ladies teach you everything. Um, I don't even remember how a conversation, but I'll just never forget. She said, she goes, you know, something I've noticed is that when people first start out on their faith and they start praying, God just seems to like do everything they ask. But the older I get and the longer I pray, she said, it's, it's more like the things I ask for, God almost brings me the opposite. And she said, and I think he does that because he's asking me if I trust him. And I thought, man, that's, that's what prayer will teach you over time, is, is, is God is very gracious and very generous, and sometimes he comes and, and touches a situation, and you go, wow, that was a miracle. And then, you know, 10 years later, 20 years later, you go, wow, God doesn't seem to be doing that anymore. And it's because what God is trying to develop in us is a deep trust. Now, I'm supposed to be talking about joy, and I am. See, we get confused about joy. We don't know what joy is. We have different definitions of joy. We associate joy with like naivete or or something silly sometimes. We tend to think in our culture that actually the deeper you are, the sadder you ought to be. You ever notice that? We think that at the foundations of all things, if you just keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper, it just gets sadder and sadder and sadder. But that's not joy. And that's not true. Deepest truth of the universe is that at the very bottom of everything is this God who loves us, created us out of joy, not out of need. I heard someone say creation was an act of play for God. Just out of his abundant joy, he just said, I'm going to make these things that are going to mess up and I'm going to transform them into something they never imagined. That's the deepest level of truth. And so I want to give you a definition of joy. Joy is an all-pervasive sense of well-being. That's what it is. An all-pervasive sense of well-being. All-pervasive means in any circumstance, in any situation, I trust that things will go well with my soul. Remember that old hymn? That's joy. See, joy isn't isn't pleasure. Joy isn't happiness. Joy has to be consistent with sorrow. Paul says, I'm sorrowful yet always rejoicing. What joy is, is this sense of well-being rooted in the fact that God is trustworthy Even when it seems like he's giving me scorpions, he's still trustworthy. That's joy. That's joy unshakable. That's why I love that we had the kids up here because Betsy Bay is right. Kids have joy. I remember one time I was was in a coffee shop in Dallas. I was in a rough part of Dallas, and I was working on a sermon or something. I don't remember. Uh, Probably just surfing the Internet, if I'm being honest. But... um, and this little kid, like, I don't know, barely, you know, three, four years old, he just walks up to my table and took, I had a cookie thing, he just took it and walked off. 
And I was like, I go, hey, that's, that's mine. And his dad runs over there and goes, I'm so sorry. I go, he could have it. You know, his grubby little hands have been on. I don't want it back anyway. Like, whatever. And, and I sat down and I kept working. But then I just started watching this kid. And this kid just walked around, said hi to everybody. Like, I was a little nervous being in this, in this particular part of town. I was like, all right, I'm just going to. And this kid's just no fear. Why? Because his dad was right there. And he had so much trust in his dad. He didn't know any better. This is just how kids live their life. They just presume they own the world. (laughs) That's my cookie, yeah, whatever. Why do they do that? Because they trust. Like, if, if they've had a good experience as a little kid, they... They just know everything's okay. Now, as they grow up, they start to figure out, no, it's not. And that's where we are. We didn't start out this way. We started out believing in this all-pervasive sense of well-being because my dad's right there, and he's going to take care of me. He always has. I have no reason to believe that he wouldn't. But somewhere along the line, as we mature and get older, we forget. Our dad's right there. Our dad's right there. I don't have to be afraid. I trust him. He's never let me down. Even when those scorpions came, you know, five years down the road, I look back on them and go, oh, those were for my good. Those changed me in ways that I'll never forget. God knew what he was doing, and I can trust him. So joy is not naive. It's deep. It's deep. I don't mean that we should, when we say that we would be a people marked by unusual joy, I don't mean that we just be silly, goofy, no, 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 everything's fine. I, I think we go, man, I've stared into the darkness of life, and you know what I found on the other side of it? Light. Light unimaginable. It's not that I'm ignoring the pain and the hardship and the realities of the world. Jesus didn't. God doesn't. God stares so deeply into the abyss. And our Father is the one who looks into nothingness and says, let there be light. And only he can do it. But he's our Father. And he really is as good as Jesus said he was. Which brings us to this fascinating connection that is everywhere in the Bible and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Again, this is not a mistake. This is not a one-off. Jesus just saying something weird. His connection with prayer and forgiveness is everywhere. In the Lord's Prayer, what do we say? Right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That one. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, right? So just everywhere in, in the New Testament, all of Jesus' teachings, there's this unique connection between prayer and forgiveness. He, he tells a parable, in fact, of a, of a servant who his master, he owed his master an unbelievable sum of money, and his master comes and says, I need that paid back, and he says, I can't, and the master has mercy on him, and then that person, that slave, turns around and goes and finds a fellow slave who owes him a minuscule amount of money, demands that he pay him back, and, and, you know, obviously he can't. He throws the guy in jail, and word gets back to the master. 
this servant that you forgave is not forgiving fellow servants. And if you remember how that story, that parable ends, Jesus said that person is cast out of the kingdom. It's an important thing, this forgiveness. It's important to Jesus for some reason. And it's connected to prayer. It's connected to this idea that I trust God. Because the reality is, is people are going to hurt us. People are going to let us down. People are going to do things to us that scar us in very serious ways. But Jesus is all about forgiveness and mercy. God loves to forgive. If you're curious, I don't have time to go into all of it, but we are doing this uh, 40 days forgiveness challenge. You'll, you'll read a lot about what God thinks about forgiveness over the course of those 40 days. So I encourage you to do that. Just a little plug there. But forgiveness with God and others is always connected. It's not a mistake. So let me give you a definition of forgiveness. I gave you one of joy. Forgiveness is releasing the intention to pay back a wrong that was done to you. That's forgiveness in a nutshell. Forgiveness is a willingness, a a desire to release the intention to pay back the wrongs that were done for you. God, that's what God does for us. He releases the intention to pay us back for the wrongs we've done to him. He says, I'm not interested in payback. And then he says, you have to learn to live the same way. So forgiveness is not that I feel better about the situation. You don't have to wait to feel better. You just release the intention to pay back. Okay, so it's important to know what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness does not mean you've got to think of that person as the best and most wonderful, nicest person in the world who actually did you a lot of harm. You don't have to think of them that way. What you have to do, though, is say, I don't want harm for you. In fact, I want good for you. That's what Jesus means when he says, bless those who curse you. I don't want harm for you even though you've harmed me. And I, we can't restore that relationship just like it was. Too much harm has gone on. That doesn't, forgiveness means I just don't want bad things for you anymore. I want good things for you, even though you've done bad things to me. And I still hurt from those things I can forgive because God has forgiven me. I heard someone say one time that the refusal to forgive others is a refusal to be healed yourself. And I think that's true. When we walk around with these grudges, what we're, what we're hardening ourselves up, and we're walking around with this kind of hardness towards everybody, and, and we're refusing to be healed. And I think that's why Jesus puts these ideas together. How can I heal you if you refuse to be healed? And with your own unforgiveness, you're refusing to let me come in and heal you. See, it's important. It's necessary. God loves mercy. God loves mercy. And I hope you don't misunderstand when I say this, but God loves to forgive sins. If you read the Gospels carefully, you look at Jesus. Jesus is always forgiving sins. And it makes the Pharisees really mad. But he's just like, you're forgiven and you're forgiven. He he loves it. He's so excited. Forgiving your sins is a weight off God's mind, in a sense. See, God God is looking for the 
easiest possible way, the simplest possible way to forgive you of your sins. See, sometimes I think we think of the cross as like a technicality <laughs> that, that God the Father got caught in, you know? Like God the Father's like, ah, oh, these sinners, we want to punish them. And Jesus is like, oh, oh, I got an I gotta idea. I'm going to come in and you got to punish sin with death, so I'm going to take the death so that now, you know, you're, God, I got you on a technicality here. Jesus took my death for me and now you have to forgive my sins. And we think it's, it's like some kind of law game sometimes. First of all, it's a really poor understanding of the Trinity. But more importantly than that, it misses the heart of God. He loves mercy more than sacrifice. You remember that? It's from the Old Testament. <laughs> That's the same God. He loves mercy. Now, the, the, the least thing that could happen in order to forgive all of our sins was the death of the Son of God, which is a huge deal. I'm, I'm not trying to downplay that. But I think that sometimes we, we think, okay, you know, God has forgiven me of my sins, and, and now, you know, uh, but I'm still kind of living in this milieu of unforgiveness, and I'm constantly worried about, oh, I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and God's probably still mad at me, and God's just constantly looking down with a scowl on his face at the way that I live my life. No. He has forgiven you of all sins, past, present, and future, and he loves to show mercy. He enjoys it. He's happy to show mercy. And so it's like God is going, okay, through the cross of Jesus Christ, I have solved the sin problem. Let's take that weight off your shoulders. Take that weight off my mind. Now we can get to the really good stuff. But what do we do? I think so many times we still walk around with our grudges and our hardness, and our fear, and our anxiety. And we miss the kingdom of God. It's right in front of us. Because God has forgiven us so that we can forgive others, so that we don't have to walk around with these resentments and these fears. We can be free of that. We fight for our territory in the mud, <laughs> Sometimes I feel that's what, like what I do. I'm just, I'm just carving out my little piece of dirt, my little piece of mud, and going, I just don't want anybody to, you, know, you stay over there, I'm going to stay over here. And, and, and God's going, man, right behind you is the beach. Well, you guys know I don't like water. It's the mountains. <laughs> prefer the mountains. There's this great, beautiful, wonderful, adventurous world that, that you are invited into to run and play with God right by your side. You don't have to be afraid. All of this is available, and we just huddle down in our little patch of mud. That brings us to unusual real quick. That's why this is so unusual, because what motivates you? You more, if you're honest, are you more motivated by fear and anxiety or by joy? Are you more motivated by resentment and competition than by forgiveness? Freedom. Forgiveness is the grease of life. Forgiveness makes life run a lot smoother. Freer. Free from all the clanking. Just... And you don't have to be unforgiving for 10 years before you can choose to forgive somebody. You can forgive them immediately, as soon as the offense is there. That's what it would look like to walk around with unusual forgiveness. 
And that's what it would look like to walk around with no fear, no anxiety, with unusual joy. And we go into wherever we go, knowing our dad's right there and that he only gives good things. And I don't have to be afraid. Even if you hurt me, God can heal me. And I don't have to hold that. It all comes back to trust God. Trust God. And can you imagine if 110 of us, however many are in this room, if we were unleashed into Leander and Cedar Park and all the places you go, and the atmosphere that we lived in was one of joy and forgiveness. Can you imagine just a hundred of us? If we lived in that atmosphere everywhere we went, what could happen? How could things be different? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us, the ways that you love us, the ways that you forgive us and how merciful you are to us. Help us to live and lean into those truths that you care for us, that you have forgiven us so that we can forgive others. Help us to want that. But God, we know there is no way for us to accomplish it, which is why we have to be a part of a community that's rooted in the truth of your word. So God, as we abide in you, grow the fruit of joy and forgiveness in our lives. We pray all these things through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.